out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love the special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of a member of the Wolfhounds, because I recently spoke to the guitarist, Andy, or Andrew, Golden, to find out more about life, love and poetry. And uh, yes, and all the other kind of groovy stuff. Just to say that he's also, apart from being a member of the Wolfhounds from virtually the beginning, or the beginning to very recently, and probably still is in the band, has a prolific solo career and goes by the name of Dragon Welding. Dragon Welding. And has got two new EPs out that um, we've been playing a lot. One titled Lights Behind the Eyes, and also another one which is Pond Life. Do check them out if you love guitar sort of, um, yes, sonic soundscapes. I don't know how you describe it. But anyway, surprisingly fantastic. Did I say surprisingly? Anyway, I have no idea. I was just a bit surprised, I suppose. Not because they were fantastic, but because um, they were quite different to what I expected. So anyway, that's live. I'm slightly babbling. So after several minutes of casual chat with Andy about this and that, which gets edited out, we got down to that very exciting subject that was the early formative years. And then from then on, it's just going to be a rock and roll roller coaster in a sort of indie pop sort of way. Anyway, Andy, take it away. My, my, my mum and dad had a, a little record player and a box of records in the loft, which uh, they let us trash, me and my two brothers, and me first. And then I, I, I taught them how to trash records, which was good. So it was mostly uh, 50s rock and roll, uh, Elvis, uh, Buddy Holly, uh, Lonnie Donegan, who absolutely very important part of, <laughs> part of my life. Was, to me, I didn't know who these people were. They were just like records. So to me, Lonnie Donegan and Elvis were just on the same level. They were just great, fast, rocking records, you know, so we, we loved all those. Yes. And then, and then I'll bring it back to the Sunday football as well. My, my dad played um, in a football team and they were always um, having like jumble sales to try and raise money uh, for to buy kits and pay for their subs to the leagues, et cetera, et cetera. And there was always a succession of... Um, people collecting old clothes and old toys and uh, and records as part of that they'd always end up in our house for um storing for a couple of weeks right so we ended up rifling through those and through that ended up with some quite incredible um records from the 60s like you know i, mean, I was born in 65 so we're talking about 71 72 maybe so things like um uh, uh, the beatles obviously the stones everyone bought singles in those days and then once they finished and they'd throw them out because they're obviously of no value <laughs> so but to, to us, they were just this amazing tre- treasure trove of um, records. The best one we ever got was uh, My Friend Jack by The Smoke, which is like a now a 60s uh, psych, freak beat British classic about taking acid on sugar lamps. But to us, it was just a, um, a guy eating sugar. We didn't know. We were like five, six years old. It was a great record. <laughs> yes, I, I, I'd forgot about that, actually. And I often sort of every few years... Have that conversation with somebody who has no idea what I'm talking about. And they go, remember on Top of the Pops, there was a guy with a whip and he would sort of hit this whip and it made this sound. And it was like, what was that song? And everyone goes, what? no, I have no idea what you're talking about, David. But he's like, yeah, man, on stage with a whip, I can tell you. You know, there was it was one of those classic songs. I don't know if it was, I, I can't remember what it was called, but it was that, those sort of tracks. You think, oh, yeah, my it would have been Xanadu, would it, surely? That must have been it, yeah. Do, because, do, because because we knew all those early rock and roll records like by uh, um, Eddie Cochran and uh, Gene Vincent and whatever. So when bands like Shawadi Wadi and Mud started covering them in 73, 74, we were li- even at that point, like me and my friend uh, Peter were going, oh yeah, but we know the original. <laughs> we were like eight-year-old snobs. Like, <laughs> yes, absolutely. That's where, that, that's where that all starts from. Right? <laughs> I know, you, you could see through the rubettes and... Uh, oh, absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. And those, those kind of other classics. <laughs> Yes, well, that was, I love all that. I love all that stuff as well, though. So, yeah, so, so it's great. So, so, when did a musical instrument enter the household? Uh, I, my mum's my great aunt was a piano teacher, and uh, in vain they tried to make me take piano lessons from the age of about four or five, but I just really wasn't interested at that time. Uh, in 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 Chopin or um, whatever it was, <laughs> they did try to make us want to play. So um, I, I, I sort of like, and that's where I learned the, the basics of music, how it works. But I wasn't very good at playing the piano. I was still not very good at playing the piano. Probably never will be. It's far too complicated for me. But um, and, but then that was my aunt. But next door to her was um, one of one of my grandparents' great friends, and he was a pub pianist, and he also used to play in. Um, 
the, the cinemas in the old days, like, you know, the silent music, the piano. Yes. And that. So every time there was a family party, there's always been this um, this conflict between my, my great aunt playing like piano properly, if you want, and then uh, Uncle George, you know, bashing out my old man says, follow the vet, et cetera, et cetera. So it was always a great night because I'd always do like half an hour each and then like they you know, turf each other off the piano. And then like, so it was, it was some really great parties. So that's really where music came into my life, listening to listening to those people from my family um, uh, play the piano at family parties. And right, my, that, what, that was mom, a good one. It was amazing. Like, were you, was this all in Romford, Essex? Yeah, Ilford, where I was from. Yeah. Yes, but was it kind of more, because I came from the sort of depths of Suffolk and we, you know, it was all about football. Everything was about football in our day. So were yeah. you also kind of, was it a footballing family as well? Um, yeah, my dad used to play. So he used to, used to take me out on Sunday mornings and, I'd, I, you know, I'd sort of like um, go around and they'd, they'd, after they'd finished playing at one o'clock in the afternoon, they'd, they'd all go down the pub for a drink on Sunday afternoon and they'd, they'd hide to be in the middle, like a huddle of these men with this like, you know, little five-year-old in the middle. And the, the barman would always come over and go, you, have you got, a, you, got a, you got a child in there? And I go, no. <laughs> <laughs> so I was, I was brought up in that sort of environment from a very early age. But um, uh, but you remember, I mean, football it wasn't really on the TV like it is now, is it? You used to have like, no, a big, big match on a Sunday and match of the day on a Monday and, uh, and Saturday, and that was pretty much it, really. So, but obviously at school, yeah, so you know, football and music were the two uh, conversation points for everybody, really. So Yes, but you, because yeah. I was a bit too young to be completely too young for punk, especially stuck in Suffolk. So did punk slightly pass you by as well during that um, time? It, it didn't, actually, because uh, when um, I was like, in, in 1977, I would have been like 11, going into 12. But I had a lot of older friends, uh, and they were into uh, music um, from the early 70s onwards, really. But they were more into things like the Detroit Emeralds and um, the Stylistics and that kind of thing. But they also liked rock music as well. And obviously, they, they used to buy the music papers, so I used to read, read the music papers around their houses. And then when, when punk rock became a thing, they sort of like switched to, to buying those kind of records as well. So like, no, I, I heard all of the uh, the popular punk bands, if you want. So I mean, so the Jam, the Stranglers, uh, the Pistols, obviously. But then you have to you have to remember, it was think bands like the Boomtown Rats were like um, on the TV were considered to be like some of the mainstream punk bands, and then uh, obviously the Jam as well. And I think yes. when, I, when I first the first when I heard the first Jam album, I think that was the one that changed it for me because it was just like so fast and so frenetic and obviously latterly I'd realised it was Dr Feelgood just played very fast which is fine by me because I love Dr Feelgood and I like fast music so uh, I think that, was, that first jam album was the one that sort of made me stand up but we never really got into the, the, the clash but never never really um, were on our radar really so um, yeah I think the jam was also just very good for writing such kind of great you know like throw out lines didn't they which were just so kind of great to shout along to all seeing you know sort of uh, angry young people talking about actually that much older than me which is quite amazing really maybe he's got five or six years on me but not, not a lot so it's like where, where he was coming from obviously half the things he was talking about I didn't understand what he was saying really but um it sounded all great to me so yes absolutely and did anything like the rockabilly did that sort of come into your orbit at all? Because I know there's quite a lot of rockabilly in Essex and there was Levi and the Rockats, which were sort of from your, you know, that particular area, I think, sort of. Uh, no, not, 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 not that I can remember. So, you know, the, the nearest that um, we got to sort of rockabilly was the stuff on the TV. So that days it was like, you know, Matchbox and maybe the Polecats and stuff like that, Stray Cats. But, um, yes. And then, I had a couple of friends that were into it. I mean, I, I, mean, I, I love, I love all the early, the, you know, 1950s American rockabilly stuff. That, that's stuff. That's um, that's part of my bread and butter. You know, stuff yes. up, so a lot of that, but only only from sort of like you know the, the mid 80s onwards, really. So, so then, as 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 we sort of went from sort of the the 70s to the 80s, and you know, Thatcher gets in in 79, and then there's the Falkland War, and then there's kind of Greenham Common, which is all very kind of everyone getting very politically in angst. And then um, obviously with a lot of the bands I've interviewed, most of them at that age, you know, were sort of unemployed or did job seekers allowance and enterprise allowance schemes. And then obviously there was the miners strike as well. So it was a great time for political angst. And we'd had sort of gone from the punk to the post-punk. And then it was that kind of a bit of a, not a shady area, but there was a kind of time where 
we're waiting for the next kind of moment really which is kind of I suppose there's the new romantic scene but then kind of indie pop is starting to sort of rear its little head up isn't it so what was your kind of early 80s kind of period like uh, pretty much what you, you said when we we, we it, it was a very exciting time especially at school because like you know obviously every, it seemed like every week there was a new genre that um somebody was uh, vying to be the first person who was into it and um and uh, I just used to listen to it all and took bits of it from bits from it, all of it, really. So uh, uh, I, I lost interest in punk about maybe 79, 80, when everyone at school started listening to it and like bands like the UK Summers, which I wasn't really that fond of. I, I, yeah, then I heard the specials. I thought, well, that's far more interesting. Yes. Uh, then sort of like just retreading punk ideas. It was like quite a refreshing thing, obviously <laughs> taken from the 60s. But when... I didn't realise that at the time, really. It just sounded like really fresh music. But then I was also into um, sort of like uh, rock music as well. So um, I was a massive Motorhead fan, an ACDC fan. So um, I sort of like, that was the way that um, my friends, my real close circle of friends sort of started going. And obviously like Joy Division um, were sort of uh, <laughs> getting big after they, after Incurse died at that point. So everyone was like referencing Joy Division. And then pretty much about the same time, we all started getting into the Velvet Underground as well. So you've got that massive sort of mishmash of the Velvet's Joy Division and Motorhead. <laughs> it's, like, it's a confusing time if you're trying to like write a linear tale there because it's obviously all over the place. But yeah, to me, it all just sounded amazing. So I, just, I loved it all. So. Yes, well, the first three Motorhead albums are just kind of the most amazing, you know, with the, the classic lineup of Filthy and Fast Eddie and then oh, yeah. obviously Lemmy. They, you know, I think it's still kind of musical perfection really in places i mean the album that fast eddie produced which was the third one wasn't quite so brilliant but the first two they did together was was just awesome really so yeah i mean yeah i mean bomber was a great album and the first one's a great album that overkill was a great album as well when they're, they're, they're just like you know those 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 singles alone motorhead bomber and overkill were just incredible i remember seeing overkill for the first time on top of the pops it was um you know thursday night or whatever it was and um uh, they just appeared and there they were with like you know the, the Phil, Phil and his double bass drum and just these two hairy blokes just shouting and it was like whoa what is this <laughs> <laughs> and I think I think I think that, that that was a moment definitely a defining moment that's on YouTube now if you go, go and check it out it's an amazing piece of Top of the Pops film it's just incredible <laughs> yes I've seen them do an Ace of Spades on Top of the Pops and obviously there's the classic one with the young ones where they're Basically, oh, yeah. which I think is is fantastic, but yeah, uh, Overkill was the one. That was the one that sort of made us all. The next day, literally in the in the playground, did you see that? What was that? <laughs> I know that was that was quite something. Was Status Quo one of those bands that was you know? Oh yeah, I love 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 Status Quo. I mean, you know, Twelve Gold Bars is probably the greatest compilation of all time. Really, it's like maybe Living on an Island, the last track, not so great, but the rest of them, yeah. It's, I mean, what are you gonna do? It was like. That was the music. It was always on the radio when I was a kid, and I just, I just loved it. I still do. Down, down, yes. just, just a phenomenal, phenomenal record. <laughs> I think it's always John Peel. He used to sort of say that he, he'd always take status quo. That if things were getting a bit tricky at one of his discos, he'd just put a status quo record on, and it calmed everything down or just made everyone happy again. So. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It was kind of one of those classic moments. So, when did you first get into being in a band? Um, I, we, we, I started learning. Well, I started learning the basics because I thought it might be simpler. That, that, that school after after um, given up on the piano, then they they forced me to play violin for a while, which again I was rubbish at. And then uh, I hated it, and I convinced my mum it was too heavy for me to carry to school. Right. And then, lo, lo and behold, a year and a half later, I started playing the cello, which was obviously like four times the size as a violin. And um, I did that for a little while, and I hated that as well. It was just really, you know, you know I'm now I sort of regret that I didn't actually like stick to it. So I love the sound of cellos and I love the sound of violins. But um, and and then and then I didn't really do anything until I went to secondary school, uh, and then I, I, I met a couple of um, close friends uh, at the time, and a few of them are still with us, and some of them sadly aren't, uh, and they were into playing instruments, so. It, I sort of started sort of like trying to pick up how to play guitar um, pretty badly, to be honest. But uh, there was a there was a scarcity of bass players around at the time. Everyone wanted to be a guitarist, but no one wanted to play bass. So I said, OK, I'll, I'll get a bass. So 
I, I ordered one off my mum's K catalogue, you know, paying two pounds a week or whatever, like you do, for my paper round. And um, and then yeah, so I became a bass player for a while, and um, yeah, I, I did end up playing with like a few bands, but there was a, there weren't that many drummers around because obviously a lot of parents were not that forgiving when it came to playing the drums. <laughs> so like, yes. Um, so the first band I ever played with a drummer was um, I don't think we we never even had a name. It was like it was this revolving. Um, member list of about six or seven people in the area and whoever turned up for rehearsals or whoever could afford to pay for a rehearsal would play and then I never really did any gigs uh, but then I I, um, I started th thinking well maybe I can play guitar maybe I can learn how to play guitar and so a couple of my friends are stuck with me and I bought a cheap guitar from a guy across the road and uh, just started playing about with it. And the first the first lick <laughs> that I ever learned was actually a, a little guitar solo from a, a track by Gong called You Can't Kill Me. Right. Steve, Steve, is Steve Hillage? Steve Hillage, yeah. There's just like a little, little tiny three-piece. And I thought, oh, I can play it. I can play it. I can play it. And so it, that that was that's what convinced me that I could be a guitarist. So, <laughs> but I didn't tell anyone, really. So I just sat there in my bedroom for like a year and a half, two years, like learning. And then um, I, I still was still playing bass and keyboards in like a couple of other bands. But then I, I got a job uh, at Wix, the hardware store. Right. Yes. And I started, started um, doing that from a very young age, and that's where I met Paul Clark, who was the other Wolfhounds guitarist at that time. And uh, he told me he was in a band. I said, oh, "I'll come and see you. I'll come and see you." And he went, "No, you won't like it. I won't let me be the judge of that." And we went to see him in Romford, and he was right; they were awful. But uh, <laughs> I, I liked the drummer because uh, we didn't have any drummers. I said, "Oh yeah." So I said to Paul, "I said I really like your drummer." And next day I saw him at, at work. He went, "Oh, that's right. Yeah, we, he left last night. That was his last gig." So, <laughs> so I went, oh, "Okay." So this is not going to go down very well. But then I sort of kept badgering him, and I said, "I'll join your band. I'll join your band." And um, I think he, event he eventually spoke to Dave Callan and said, um, you know, I've got this guy who wants to join the band. And he said, what does he play? And I said, oh, I play keyboards, I play keyboards. So uh, um, I think they expected me to turn up with my Casio keyboard for like the first rehearsal one some Sunday morning, but I didn't, I turned up with a guitar. Right. And they was all saying, well, where's your keyboard? And I went, oh, sorry, I forgot it. So, 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 so then I became the second guitarist in the band, and, and that was it. Really. So, that was the I, formation of the band. So I joined the Wolfhounds. Yeah. So, so what, had they got any material at that stage, or were they still...? Uh, they were, well, before the Wolfhounds, they were called the Changelings. Right. Uh, and there's one track that was released on an album called... Uh, Garage Goodies Volume One, which was a compilation uh, released by um, Mike Spencer of the Cannibals. Right. So it's, it's got people like the. I've got it. I've got it somewhere. It's a fantastic record sleeve. It's fully psychedelic, full-on garage stuff with like people like the Stingrays and the Milkshakes, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, the Cannibals, obviously, on it as well. Uh, and then um, there was there was a few a few tracks that they had which I liked. And then it later transpired they were cover versions. <laughs> so I love the one they wrote called You're Gonna Miss Me, which was, of course, by the 34 Elevators. And then I love Pushing Too Hard, which is, of course, a Seeds song. So all, all the songs that I really liked were all covers, but there you go, that's love. Yes, <laughs> so, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and then, so, yeah, good. No, I was going to say, I, I, you know, that is one of those things. Sometimes I've seen friends, you know, with their bands and they've kind of done a set and you think, actually, this, the best songs are the ones they've covered. <laughs> Yeah, so they had quite a few originals as well. So we started playing those and then we started writing together. Yes. Yeah. So because I've put, you know, the, the great indie world, there, were, there was kind of like with a lot of the people I've ever spoke to about this kind of scene, they've often mentioned, you know, the Orange, Orange Juice being really influential and then sort of the June Brides go between and the Smiths. And I put sort of indie pop down between, you probably don't call yourself indie pop, but I put it down between the years of 83 to 87, which are the years of the Smiths, because there was a, definitely a vibe in that kind of five years where it felt like there was quite a scene. And obviously the cassette comes out and there's, you know, you had John Peel, the great gatekeeper who played most of the songs that were quite interesting. And then all these venues had sort of an alternative indie night, didn't they? So bands could oh, yeah. sort of get out there and then you had three weekly music papers. So things, people could sort of shift gear quite quickly, couldn't they? It was a, the the... the... The, the key moment for us, because we were, we were in Romford, which is like, you know, obviously like not quite London and not quite Essex. It's sort of like smack bang in the middle between the two. 
But um, we had an indie club called The Res, the Reservation Street, which was um, the DJ there was a guy called Chris French, who um, was great at convincing bands to come and play in Romford. Right. So uh, he'd have bands who were signed to major labels like uh, The Plain Jane. Uh, they were signed to, uh, I think it was Polydor, I'm probably wrong, someone will correct me. And he got them to come down and play to, you know, 50 people at Romford. And from there, we got a, a, a slot supporting them at the Marquee, which was like, you know, the Marquee, us playing at the Marquee was incredible. And then um, I think the, the, the first the first band that came down that uh, really blew us away were a band called Turkey Bones and the Wild Dogs. And um, they were fantastic noise merchants, um, basically the birthday party, but the birthday party coming to Romford, which was just incredible. And um, and then they they got on the front cover of Sounds and it was like, wow, you can actually play in Romford and get on the front cover of Sounds. So it was like, that sort of like made us realise that maybe maybe London isn't that far away from Romford. So if we actually you know, got in our van and like started looking for gigs in London, then we might actually start to get noticed. And that's pretty much what happened. Uh, but yeah, the res was like um, this incredible melting pot of ideas. It used to be indie night on a Wednesday and then goth night on a Thursday. So right. we, just used, we just used to go to both. So like, but because and, and the, the 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 meeting point for both of them was the cramps. So the cramps were all over the place. So like, we, everyone loved the cramps. So um, uh, it was great. It, it, was, it was like it, it was more like um, maybe stuff like Micro Disney and the Smiths and the Velvets and John from Richmond on the Wednesday and on the Thursday you go down and it'd be like the cult and. Um, uh, yeah, the birthday party and and but the Cramps were the uh, the band that, that united everybody. Really, everybody loved the Cramps. <laughs> yes, I know it was. Um, yeah, God, there's so many good bands, weren't there? So when you so you sort of formed in sort of '85 time, didn't you? So it was. It was I think the, I think the band formed in about '83. I think I joined him in about '84, and then our first gigs were sort of you know '85, early '85. Yes, and then you yeah. you signed your first your label though was the Pink Label, wasn't it? Pink Label, yeah. Yes, yeah. and that is when you brought out Cut the Cake, which was the great sort of. It was a, I suppose it was a twelve inch single. I seem to remember buying a copy of it from I don't know Andy's Records in Norwich. Be very exciting because it had you know the classic another lazy day on the lazy A. Can you remember how that song came into being? That one, um, I think we, at, that, at that point, a lot of the sort of, I'm going to call them old songs, <laughs> uh, were sort of being replaced by these new ones that we were writing. Uh, and um, on, on, on that EP, it was, it was Cut the Cake, which I think was me and, me and Paul wrote that and they put the words over the top. And then LA Juice, which is my favourite one on that um, that introduction was something that Paul wrote to annoy his brother uh, <laughs> <laughs> which we picked up on immediately and just started working on that and then uh, Dead Think was sort of like you know, this garage sort of rockabilly thing which is great but another Hazy Down the AZA I think I think that sort of came out of a sort of almost a jam which was pretty strange for us we never really used to jam someone would come up with an idea and we'd work on it but I think Andy Bolton the bass player just started playing the bass line and then um, me and Paul just started playing the guitars over the top of it. So that's why there's not really much form or structure to it, really. It's just these meandering guitars. Yes, uh, it almost plays homage to The Doors. There's a Doors song, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, 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 yeah. Very slow, sort of atmospheric thing. So I think when John Peel played it, it did seem very sort of unusual and a bit like, oh, that's a bit spooky and a bit edgy. So, you know, it, did, it sort of stood out quite a lot in his, yeah. you know, three-hour show on a... Monday night or whatever. So yes, it was it was a good one. And how many copies does a sort of record like that kind of sell? Because you know that that I'm, you'd have to ask the Pink Label, but I'm I'm thinking not a lot. I think probably you know maximum we'll do about maybe ten thousand copies, a twelve inch single, but probably less than that. Yes. But, yeah. No. Because it, it, it's, it's, um, it's one of those things. It's like you know if if you have a hit, which we never really did, you have to get the records out into the stores that week and, and get them plugged and promoted. Uh, and if you're a major label, then that's, you know, that's, that's what you do. But if you're like, like the pink label, which was two guys in the back room in these towns, <laughs> it's not quite that easy. So, you know. Yes, I guess it, 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 it does take, it does take its time, but then it must've felt with the band, it must've felt like you were at least on the next, you know, rung of the ladder really. Yeah. I mean, the, I mean, I remember going to see the, um, the proofs for the the cover, the the the, you know, the 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 record sleeve, and that was when we went up to uh, Rough Trade in um, in Kings Cross, 
where rough trade was at that time and you know we, we went in the building and that, that that was exciting that was that was when it sort of made me realize we've now got access to something like rough trade we are part of that uh, machine if you like so uh, and then when they showed us the cover it was called cut the cake it's like mm, no it's not called cut the cake it's but it was supposed to be called la juice but <laughs> but, <laughs> but they, they'd done the sleeve and it was like okay <laughs> so there you go so it's like <laughs> you had to just go with it didn't you really? go with it yeah yeah but that's fine it was it was good it all worked out all, but all then right. you you then sort of follow up with a fantastic this fantastic the anti-minus touch which is probably you know one of the musical highlights of the band wasn't it anti-minus touch yeah so, yeah, so yeah, yeah, that was a again. There's a you know, it was conceived as an EP. So there's two versions. There's a five track EP on the twelve inch, and then the I think two or three tracks on the single. And that was the first one we did on single and twelve inch. So that was a that was good. Yeah, exciting. And how did you manage to get onto the the great C eighty six cassette? Um, okay, I'm really, that. I'm really not sure. You'd have to ask the the pink label. I know, I know that they they, they said, oh, they, they they want to put out this cassette, which um, there's a few bands on it. I know that I think that Petra Emotion had turned it down, and the June Brines turned it down. So they asked us and McCarthy, who were like the new bands on the label, and um, and we said, yeah, why not? You know, it's just, it's just some cassette that no one's going to be talking about in six months' time. <laughs> Little did we know that I'd be sitting there. <laughs> With you 40 years later, or whatever he's talking yes, about. Yes, this is true, actually. So, uh, yeah, so, so, so we, 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 but at that time, so we, we were swapping out a lot of the old songs for new songs. And I think at that point, we'd actually run out of songs, new songs to put on it. So, Feeling So Strange, which is the track that we have on there, was like an, an, an older song, if you like, but it was quite quite poppy and quite sort of upbeat. So, we thought, oh, that'd be good. Let's put that one on there. In hindsight, I wish we put Anti Midas Touch on it, obviously, because like, it went on to sell, you know, C86s. <laughs> We'd have put our best song on it at the time. It probably would have been a lot more um, beneficial to our careers. But there you go. That's life. What we're going to do. So, well, I think yeah. um, the Mighty Lemon Drops. They used the sort of record the finance for the recording to sort of. I don't know. I can't remember how they did it, but I remember Dave Newton saying that they they did quite well. They sort of got quite a bit of money to record some music and then just kind of quickly lobbed, you know, a track for the cassette. So um, yeah, we, we, we we managed to rec- we recorded four tracks. Um, for it and we chose uh, Feeling So Strange was the one we actually spent time on we had a bit of time left at the end and we recorded three more songs which have never seen the light of day so, uh, one day maybe yes well hopefully and then obviously you know with when you know like and I mean that's the thing that I've sort of realised doing these interviews everything has to happen so quickly don't they most bands have this great five year narrative where they you know they get together they have that one year honeymoon you know, if they get John Peel play, they get John Peel session, things are going well, they get lots of dates scattered around the country in a transit van, the first album, and everything was going so good. So how was it for you when you suddenly realised there was a there was some sort of traction on the band? We 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 all had day jobs, so for us it was um we try to do as much as we can, could. Uh but you know, there were times where it just it wasn't practical for everyone to get, you know two weeks off at a time to go on tour. So we, we tended to sort of, you know, go and maybe play one or two days here and then come back and then try and get another couple of days elsewhere um, initially. Uh, and then towards the end of 87, I think when the, when the first album came out, we sort of made a decision, maybe, maybe we should, um, you know, try and do this uh, seriously. So unfortunately at, at that point we signed a publishing deal um, with a company called Complete Music, I think, and they gave us a, a small advance. It wasn't a huge advance, but it was enough uh, for us to buy a, a van and um, some new guitars and some drum kits and whatever. So, um, so we, we had the mechanics in place at that point, and then it was basically a decision: okay, do, do we um, do we do we give up work and try and do this full time, or do we you know, carry on doing it part time? So, it was me and Paul who were the. Uh, uh, not the troublesome ones. So a lot of the, the others were sort of on the dole and doing the enterprise allowance scheme or whatever. But yes, me and Paul both worked. So uh, we we took the decision to like let, let's do it. We're only young once, so um, we gave up our jobs, and then um, got got a, a few gigs, a few more gigs out of it. But obviously, it wasn't really enough to to, to pay rent. For, I was fortunate; I was still living with my mum and dad. But, but Paul had a flat at that time, so he was um, he was a bit more. Um, it's a bit more pressing for him to have some money to pay the rent at the end of the week. So, uh, so we ended up getting like part-time jobs uh, through a job agency, 
and uh, we 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 did some horrendous things together. The worst one was working at a um, a milk bottling plant in Chadwell Heath. Right. Starting at five a.m. in the morning, and our jobs was basically to go in there, take over from the night shift, put on their overalls, and soaking wet milk sodden Wellington boots, which they just taken off, and then we used to put on. And then we used to go in and basically take the milk cartons, you know, the, you know, the plastic things with the red tops and the green tops, and then put them on a conveyor belt and then take them off the conveyor belt and then put them on a, a pallet. And then the, the worst thing we were ever asked to do was, do you remember we used to get um, um, free milk at schools before? Yes, with a little bottle. So some, some, some private schools still did that. And... Uh, they would come back to the factory and it was our job to take off the silver bottle tops with the straws in them and the congealed milk still in them and and basically put them into a plant to washing. It was absolutely disgusting, just stank of milk. And then when you got to um, your tea break, you could have as much free milk as you wanted. Guess what? (laughs) But we, we stuck at that for a little while, but then after a while, we sort of like, yeah, we weren't really getting that many gigs. So I think, Paul went back to working at Wix, and then I started working for one of my cousins as a builder's labourer, which was <laughs> which was which was which was slightly better for both of us. So at least it meant I could work part time wherever I wanted, and then go and do um, play with the band whenever we had gigs. So yeah, that worked yes, well. God, that's that that's that's well. quite rough. And did you ever, apart from you know going around the country, did you ever go through into Europe at all with any? Yeah, yeah, we 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 we, we went to Europe quite a lot. So we 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 um, first first tour we went to. Um, to France and Belgium with McCarthy, which was great. Uh, and then we went to Switzerland and then we went to the Netherlands with McCarthy as well. So we, we did quite, I would quite happily have spent my, my, my entire life <laughs> in those tour vans touring around Europe. But yes, but absolutely. You can, only, you can only do it for, you can only play places like, you know, so many times in a year. And, uh, it was a, yeah, it was good. It was good fun. It was great. And how was the audience? Did they did they sort of pick up on the the great English? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it's obviously some some of some of the places we played were in the middle of nowhere, uh, and like you know, there weren't maybe that many people there. But some of those audiences were the most appreciative because you know no one else would go to those places. So uh, uh, so those were always the, always some of my favourite gigs. Um, the, the, the Netherlands was always good. We liked playing there. Uh, Switzerland was fantastic. We went out to a place called um, uh, uh, I forgot what uh, 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 Anyway, somewhere in Switzerland, and the guy there was a, a radio plug and he had his own show, and there was there was literally you know sort of you know, five six hundred people turned up to see little old us from <laughs> from Romford, and it was amazing. That was that was an incredible night, one of the best. So, God, I know yeah. that would be fantastic, and McCarthy as well, which is a stunning double. Yeah. Yeah, they're, they're, they're a nice, nice bunch of people. So we, and we got on really well, really. So, so when did when did Andy and Paul get replaced with um, David and Matt? Um, so um, Paul, I think Andy left first, uh, and uh, then then Dave came in. Uh, that was after the end of the first album, and just as we just as we were recording the Son of Nothing EP, which is the first thing we recorded um, after Andy went. Uh, and then Paul played on the Son of Nothing EP, and then at that point he basically said he you know, he had enough. He needed he needs to go and earn some money. So um, yes, just fairly devastating, really, because so, <laughs> I, I love playing with Paul. He was great. Um, so then the, I just yeah, you know, we just thought, who are we who are we going to get? Who are we going to get? I, I really at that point I still, I wanted Dave to play guitar and sing, but Dave at that point was very into like running around and still being mad on stage with his notebook. Uh, and I'd, I'd known Matt um, for a while. He'd been playing with a band called Uncle Doorknob, uh, who were like this college band that uh, my wife and her friend alerted us to. And they were great. Uh, and they had a couple of my good friends, Paul Connell and Richard Waters, playing in that band as well. Uh, and then, then they decided to, um, to to split up just at the point that we needed a guitarist. Fantastic. So, I phoned up Matt and said, Matt, what are you doing? He said, nothing. I said, you want to join my band? And he said, yeah, so there you go. That's, that's how we got Matt in the band. And did you watch the documentary? I'm in it. You're in it? I haven't actually seen it. It kind of yeah. came when. I was like, oh, no. You can get it on, it's on Sky Arts and it's out on Blu-ray now. So uh, Right. Yeah, 
Yeah, because I've, I've kept in contact with Matt over the years. Um, when they, when they started doing the documentary, they sort of um, they asked me if I'd like to be in it. So yeah, I'm, I'm in it quite a bit. <laughs> yes, absolutely. So then, he, is is that the lineup that's in the second album, which is um, uh, Bright and Beauty? That's the one. And did that yeah. by then? What happened to the Pink Label? The Pink the Pink Label. Um, uh, Paul and Simon decided to go their separate ways, and I think uh, Paul brought uh, Simon down out. Uh, and then basically it sort of naturally turned into September, which is where Paul released a couple of records. So I think there's, there's, there's at least one McCarthy single, I think, on September, and the Son of Nothing EP came out on um, September as well. And then uh, I think he did something with Yargo on September as well, as I recall. Uh, and uh, and then, but 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 yeah, there was, it was it was sort of a sort of a, quite a fluctuating period really for um, the band because. Um, before Dave Oliver joined, so I just remembered, um, Martin played bass for us for a while. Martin Stebbing, who was a brother of um, Frank Stebbing, our drummer, he stepped in for a couple of gigs and, and played bass. And then so Martin uh, actually played bass on the Son of Nothing uh, track on that. So, so, so Martin came and then Martin toured us for a while and that was going really well. But then Martin went off to um, America. I think he was a, he was the... He was the um, Rodeo driver for the Jazz Butcher, and I think they got an American tour, so he went out there and never came back. <laughs> that's, that's another story. Um, uh, and so, uh, yeah, that's when, that's when Dave Oliver came in. And then, so we started recording with Dave, but then there was a couple of other tracks we did. I played bass on a couple, Dave Callahan played bass on a couple of them. So, um, I think if you look at the, the track listing for um, the, the, the lineups are listing for Brian Guilty. I think there's about eight or nine different musicians on various guys. So it's like, it was a it was a, quite, quite a fluid period for the band room. Yes, and you but you did the classic Happy Shopper, which is yeah, which, yeah. which we all loved immensely. But you went for Midnight Music. Was I'm amazed there wasn't sort of a bit of a bidding war for you to be on another label like either Creation or Rough Trade or Glass Records or something like that. Why Midnight Music? So um, I think I can't remember how Paul got in touch with um, Nick. The, the guy that owned Midnight Music was Nick Ralph. Um, he was a really nice guy, and he had his own recording studio and his own record label as well, obviously. And Midnight, uh, and he had like, people like um, Sad Lovers and Giants and um, Robin Hitchcock and people like that. So it was like he had a pretty good setup. Yeah. So I think Paul started working with him. And basically um, said to Nick, look, I'll, I'll, I'll work for you and try and promote the rest of your bands if you, if you, know, if you take on the Wolfhounds and McCarthy. And so then that's how that happened. So um, it, it, creatively, it was good because it meant we had access to a recording studio at very low cost. So we recorded some great stuff in that, um, in, in that studio in, um, in Berwick Street in London, which is sadly no longer there. I walked past it a few times and it's a shop now. So <laughs> it's gone. It's but, gone. Um, yeah, but uh, and then that's where we met um, Ian Capel, who used to do do some engineering work down there, and uh, it was a fantastic studio. But what really sold it to us was he told us that that's where they were um, the Sugar Cubes recorded Birthday. So I said, well, well, if you can get any record to sound as good as that, then uh, we'll, we'll stay here for a while. Then, so. Yes, absolutely. That that was very. And were you pleased with the sort of outcome of the first album with um, on Midnight Music? Uh, well, yeah, because it, it was strange because we we started recording it. At, um, Scarf Studios in East London, where we recorded the first one, which is a tiny little studio, which is again no longer there, um, with the same team that um, engineered um, Unseen Ripple, so um, Nigel Palmer. And, and then halfway through, Paul got a call from um, a guy called Tim Baldwin, who'd heard uh, the remix that we did on a Son of Nothing called Second Son, which is like the you only know, sort of like eight or nine minute thing with samples and beats on it, which were just we chopped up from the original recording. And um, he really liked that. And he said, I really want to work with this band. And uh, he had access to Martin Russian's studio out in um, Oxfordshire. Right. It's called Streetly. And, and we went out there to look at it. And it was like, you know, this, it was proper. It was an actual recording studio in Martin Russian's house with a swimming pool in the garden. And it's like, well, that, that's it. We're now going to be rock stars. <laughs> <laughs> but we didn't have any money to pay for it. So... Um, uh, uh, Paul managed to convince Tim to convince Martin Russian that um, we were going to be big. So if we didn't actually pay that much for it up front, they'd, they'd give them some points on the album sales. 
which Martin Russian kindly said, yeah, okay. So <laughs> we, we managed to wangle a couple of weeks at uh, this great recording studio uh, with a top flight engineer in Tim Baldwin. And, and that's where most of the stuff was recorded. So uh, yeah, so that, that, it sounds great. Um, yeah, absolutely. It's a, it's a good album. And it, hopefully being re-released next, next year as a double album on vinyl via Optic Nerve. Oh, uh, Optic Nerve, we love them, don't we? So yeah, <laughs> all the way we're, we're, we're working on getting the tracks together at the moment. So, uh, yeah, yeah, stay, mm -hmm. stay tuned for more news on that one. <laughs> so did you, I mean, during that period, you know, because as, as the 80s progressed on and things were changing and obviously, you know, politically stuff was slightly shifting a bit. But then also, you know, like around 87, the Smiths break up, there's a new wave of... I don't know, 16 to 18 year olds who want their kind of soundtrack. And you had that whole dance scene with, you know, like Stone Roses and Primal Scream and Soup Dragons, Happy Mondays. And then, you know, that North London sort of grunge scene with, you know, Carter and Lush and then My Bloody Valentine and the Faith Healers. Were you feeling a little bit like, where do you fit into all that kind of the, the musical fabric of our life? Um, not, not really so much with uh, the Faith Healers and My Bloody Valentine because we, we knew them anyway. So, We've been playing with My Bloody Valentine since um, about 85. And one of our first gigs was, was with My Bloody Valentine at a squat in Hackney called uh, The Blue House. Um, so uh, watching them progress was uh, um, quite fun. Um, I think, I think for, for a, lot, a lot of bands at the time, yeah, you're right, the, Smith, the Smiths did change our attitude to um, being successful. Maybe you could be successful as a, you know, a four-piece indie band from nowhere and you know, do it on your own terms. But... Um, it wasn't really until um, we all heard um, Sister by Sonic Youth that that, that really sort of um, gelled us together again, if you like, and got, got us past our indie pop phase and back to where we wanted to be, which was like making records that sounded like uh, the Velvet Underground and um, whoever, a lot of noisy music. Because that's where we come from. Beefheart Beef was really sort of the person who... Um, that gelled me, Paul and Dave together, the interplay of the guitars and that kind of stuff. And then, yes. then when, when the, the Smiths came along, maybe, maybe we got carried along away in the pop group. Um, we're a pop group, let's play pop music thing. But I think, you know, there's still, still some stuff that um, uh, doesn't sound like that. Obviously, at the same time, we'd all start listening to Tom Waits as well. So Rain Dogs was a massive influence on all of us. So if you listen to uh, Brighton Guilty, there's, some, there's definitely some Tom Waits in there as well. So. Yes. Well, <laughs> but, I think... Definitely, sister. I think was the one which um, which 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 pulled us back together to sort of start making some uh, sort of more attacking music again. Did sister come out after evil, or was that before? Yeah, evil. Evil was like, evil was the one before sister. Right, and then yeah. obviously they had the kind of the, the classic one, didn't they? Um, teenage. Daydream Nation. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a great album, but by that time, it's sort of like they. I think I think Sister's a much better album. It was definitely it was definitely the one where we it made us all sit up and go, what is this? <laughs> and it was, it was more a way that it sort of explained to us again how you could make loud guitar music without making it sound like rock music because it's definitely not a rock album. And if I, if I listen to it now, it doesn't sound anything to me like it did when I first heard it. And I don't I can't really explain what I mean by that. In, in my mind, the guitars are all mad and distorted, but you listen to it, they're not. They're totally clean and <laughs> so, <laughs> they, they, they weave again. So it's a, it's a, it's a great album. Yes. So when you went in to make um, Attitude in the late, very late 80s, did there, was there a feeling with the band that that was going to be your last kind of recording together? Um, I, <laughs> to be honest, we, we Blown Away was the one before that, which was, um, that, that was the first time that Dave really wrote the vast majority of the songs and then sort of I added to them. Uh, we added to them, rather, sorry. Uh, so that was a different way of, uh, of writing. And then when we came to do Attitude, um, Matt, Matt had gone by that time and Alan Sterner came in to play guitar on that album. And Alan had a lot of great ideas about um, uh, uh, guitar music. So, so Alan was a, a, great, a great influence on that album as well. So, and I really liked playing with Alan as well. So that, that was um, an interesting period. But we'd sort of, we'd reached the point where we, we didn't think we were going to get much further with Midnight Music. They weren't really putting the money into a promotion, as, as you sort of said earlier. Um, so it was really sort of, um, what do we do after this? 
and I think our contract with Midnight stipulated that we had to release another 17 tracks on the on the label to get out of the contract. Right. That's why the, the CD version of Attitude has 17 tracks on it. <laughs> so we just wanted to get out of it. So uh, we delivered all those tracks in one go. That's why the, the CD is quite long. Uh, and then and then and then we were free, if if you like. So the first thing we did is you, you touched upon the, the dance thing. That, that 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 started happening around that time. And um, so we said, oh, let, let, let's see if we can put our hands to that. So we went in, back into the same studio, but paid for it this time. Uh, and we tried doing a sort of different version of a track called Gutter Charity, which is the first track on our album. And um, I think it became fairly obvious to us that we weren't dance musicians and we didn't really know <laughs> what we were doing. So uh, um, listening back to it now, it's an interesting experiment, but it's an interesting experiment that cost us a lot of money and <laughs> made us all feel very miserable at the time, I think. So, uh, yeah, and, and and sort of, you know, actually it's a great album. I still listen to it. It's good. But I'd, I'd reached the point where I sort of like, I, 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 at that point I was 25 and I thought that was far too old to be in a band. <laughs> Just, <laughs> ridiculous thinking about it now but again I'd, I'd reached the point where i was still living with my parents and i wanted to move out yes and um so i sort i sort of made the decision that that, that would be my last warfans album and as it turned out it was the last warfans album for several years so, yeah, yes that, or decades really did you then yeah. was that kind of it music kind of musically or did because you were in a band with um was it frank for a while called crawl yeah there was, there was a couple of things that sort of happened after that so i i got i still kept in contact with matt matt dayton and he was playing in a band called uh, the kenny process team with paul Cannell, who's a good, good friend of mine and a guy called todd another good friend of mine and um that was sort of very very free form and uh, sort of improvisational improvisational stuff no no songs literally they'd turn up and play and then record it and if they liked it they'd listen to it and if they didn't they'd forget about it yes and, uh, that, that sort of that, that that fitted with what I wanted to do at the time because I didn't want to commit to anything, so I started playing with with, with them guys for a while, which was insane. And we, were, we just used to go down to a recording studio in um, a um, Wolfenstein on a Saturday morning and basically record live into a um, a cassette in the studio with a guy called John DeBrett, and he'd sit there and mix it live, and then um, we'd listen to it, and it was all great. That was that was great fun. I thoroughly enjoyed that. And then um, and then and then. Um, I sort of started playing about with um, uh, um, Letitia Sadier and Tim Gain from McCarthy as well. So we started working together because they, they got offered by Midnight Music to put out a one-off single. Yes. Uh, and they asked me if I wanted, wanted to play on it. And I said, yeah, of course, I'll, I'll do that. So um, we did that. And uh, we, we it was a cover version of a Serge Gainsbourg song. And uh, we got that together. And, uh, and then I, I went for a job interview about the same time. And um, they, were, they, were, they were literally in my bedroom on a Friday afternoon and we were recording the demo for what was, would have been the single and I got a phone call um, being offered the job. So it was like literally the, <laughs> the fork in my life. What do you want to do? Join Stereo Lab or get a job? And I chose the job. And then who, who knows? Did I make the right decision or not? We'll never know. <laughs> it's, a, it's a tricky one. It's like a Ginger Moose movie, isn't it? You're at that sort of... <laughs> Sliding doors, yeah. With, yes, with, with Tom Waits and John. Yeah. So, so, so then, yeah. So then you're right. So, so after that, then, then nothing really happened for a while, and then um, Paul Cornell came found me out because Paul would, um, uh, Paul uh, famously did the cover for the um, scream, uh, scream Adelica by Primal Scream. You know, the sun. Yeah. On sleeve, and uh, out of that, he did, he did quite a lot of work for Creation, and. Um, I think McGee said to him, well, why aren't you a rock star? You should be a rock star. So then Paul phoned me up and said, I'm going to be a rock star. Come and join my band. So of course, yeah, of course I will. <laughs> so by that, that was about four or five years later. So I was about 30 by that time. So um, yeah, we released one single on Creation, which is which is great. And then we recorded an album and then it all went horribly wrong. And the album never saw the light of day. So and that's, and that's really where I stopped um, for a while. I carried on making music with my brothers and some friends. Uh, just just for the fun of it uh, and then didn't actually sort of release anything again until um, uh, Wolf fans got back together yes so the one you did on creation records is that sour face sour face yeah yes so yeah. um listening to it now what's your feelings about it oh it was great fun it was <laughs> we, we managed to get a resident residency down at um 
the Falcon, the Camden Falcon. Classic. We did like four, four Fridays in a row, and it was like it was hot and sweaty and 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 great. But, but my wife was uh, heavily pregnant at the time, and um, and McGee bought me a pager. So <laughs> when I was on stage, if at any second his pager could have gone off, and I'd have to have left and rushed to the hospital. <laughs> Yeah, there's, I said, there's, there's, there's a whole album of that stuff which uh, one day really needs to see the light of day because it was it was a really good album. But uh, Creation uh, sold, or got bought up by Sony, and the whole thing just got lost. Really. So, so, so the tapes are somewhere in the in somewhere. The yeah, I've, I've got I've got a cassette of it. And, uh, but yeah, the master tapes are somewhere. I think they're under our manager's bed somewhere. So we, every now and again, we talk about it. And we really should do something with it, and it never happens. <laughs> well, we'll do. I mean, sure, I'm sure Optic Nerve and Preston will, will, will <laughs> dig, it, dig it out and put it on a nice vinyl. So, what happens then when you, you know, decide you know, a bit like the return of the Magnificent Seven? What What was the moment that made the uh, the band come back together? Um, well, obviously, Dave carried on for a long time with Moonshake. That's some you know, great success. Um, with that, and then obviously I saw Stereo Lab go on from strength to strength, and still are. So, uh, and then obviously uh, Matt Dayton went on to play with Paul Weller, and ended up doing Stint and Oasis and things like that. So um, I, I always kept my eye on what was going on. And then um, someone pointed out to me that all of a sudden it was like 20 years since we we've released Cut the Cake, which is in 2005. So I was like, oh. so I, I sort of punted an email to Dave and said, "Do you fancy doing a gig to like you know just for old times' sake?" And uh, he said, yeah. So um, by, by that time, Frank Oldrubber had moved, gone to Dubai, where he still is. Uh, I spoke to Dave Oliver, Dave Oliver, and he was up for it. And then um, via a website for Tradar, the band that I've sort of been doing in a cellar for 15, 20 years, uh, I got in contact with um, Pete Wilkins, who was, a, who was a massive Wolfhounds fan from the day and also happened to be a drummer and also happened to have a van. So so we, we did that as a one-off thing in a, a club called The Purple Turtle in you know, Camden and people seemed to like it. And then a year later, we sort of got an email from Bob Stanley um, who said he was doing like, you know, 20-year thing for C86 at the ICA. Would we be interested in playing that? So we said, yeah, of course, you know, we'd love to do that. So we played that with Roddy Frame and uh, <clears throat> Phil Wilson from the June Brides. Right. God, so that, so that, 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 that was good. And that, that was great. That was a great night. That was, it was so loud. It was the loudest I've ever played in my entire life. It was great. <laughs> <laughs> and then, um, and then you know, over the years, we sort of, you know, people would ask us now and again, do you want to do a gig? And we just did, did the old gig. But it, it sort of got harder to remember how the old songs went, really. And we also found, obviously, because, like, you know, you know the Wolfhounds has been many bands over the 80s and into the early 90s. When we tried to play some of the songs, they just did not sound correct. They didn't sound right because the people, obviously, that the input into those songs in the first place just weren't there anymore. And it yeah. sort of started to sound like a covers band, and that's not really what we wanted to do. So it was then we just, you know, about 2011, you know, again, we just floated the idea, hey, let's just maybe start writing some new songs. So very slowly and surely we, <laughs> we did. Uh, that's how we, that's, we started releasing like you know a few singles and EPs, and then yeah. by the time we got to enough tracks for an album, we put out an album. So. And this was on Oddbox Records, which I think died. Uh, but yeah, Oddbox. Odd so uh, well, Trevor's in London at the time, uh, and then he moved to Wales. Well, is that why the Darling Buds are on there as well? Uh, very possibly. Yeah. Probably yes. And there you yeah they so the album is Untied kingdom isn't it no the first, the first one was a compilation called um, um middle-aged freaks which is about i think it's got like 12 or 16 tracks on it so there was like three of the singles we put out and then we had another three or four tracks that uh, sort of, we added onto it uh, so it and um it's really good it's it, it, it's definitely a compilation you can hear it. it's not a, a linear album like the other two but you know we're very proud of it so well, absolutely. That's, you know, it's all, it's all got to be done. So then you obviously had the sort of excitement to sort of continued. Were you picking up new fans or were you mostly sort of dealing with sort of people who had already known you? Um, it, it, it's, a, it's, it's definitely a mixture. You know, I've, I've met a few you know, um, fans from back in the day who don't like what we do now, which is fair enough. And some of the people from the old days do like it. Um, but I mean, these days we pretty much just exclusively play all new stuff. We very rarely play anything from like, you know, the eighties. 
Um, I think I think Nightingales did the same or do the same actually. Yeah, yeah, I mean, they're, they're, yeah, they're, they're fantastic. I love the Nightingales. <laughs> yeah. And to be honest, you know, it's like you think about people like David Bowie and all this sort of just in his seventies period. I mean, you know, you can't be that too fickle, can you? When Low came out, could you imagine what people would have, you know, thought? Yeah, you know, absolutely. After, yeah. Let and also, we're not getting any younger, so it's a lot easier to remember the new ones. <laughs> absolutely, no, that, that is that is absolutely true. But then you've you've also done solo work, which is kind of when did when did you start releasing? And were you kind of calling it yourself, or or this one, which is um, by another name? Dragon wielding, yeah. So uh, I saw I, when we did Anti Kingdom, um, I sort of I carried I'd, I'd had a lot of ideas that um, didn't get used for that record. Uh, and I just basically carried on recording them uh, on my own. And then I sort of reached a point where I listened to like, you know, eight or nine tracks, whatever it is on that album. And I thought, well, this actually sounds like a record. Uh, and I'd never really been um, much cop at self-promotion or even belief. <laughs> so uh, um, I approached um, uh, a turntable friend record and, and sent, 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 um, sent the, uh, the, the 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 tracks to Ulrich and Ulrich came back and said yeah I, I really like these I'll, I'll release them uh, so um, that was great so um, Ulrich put them out as a CD uh, and then um, I, I just I just I just carried on writing really I, I do a lot of writing on um, trains and buses and I write everything basically on iPhone and iPad yes and then once I get to a point then I'll move it onto the the Mac and put it into Logic and sort of try and make some sense out of it. Um, so, you know, I've got so many um, bits. <laughs> I must get around to finish it. But the, ne the next one, again, I just I did the same thing. I, just, I got an album together, an album's worth of stuff together, and I sent it to um, Dimple Discs, and, uh, and they liked it as well. So they, they put this latest one is out on CD and vinyl. And then I finished another one, which hopefully will come out next year, which will hopefully be double vinyl, if they can actually find anyone who's still got vinyl to, <laughs> <laughs> yes. to use. And then, uh, yeah, so, yeah. And then um, I've started playing some of the stuff live as well, which is um, not something I'd really envisage doing, to be honest. It's sort of like, I wouldn't say it's a studio creation. I'd say it's just me and an iPhone creation and then I guitars over the top of it. Um, but then um, I got asked to play in Preston at the Pop Fest earlier in the summer. I did that. And then Dimple Discs have started doing some gigs and they asked me to play on a couple of those. So I played in Dublin this week, just gone. Yes. Uh, me, me and my iPad and my guitar on a, on a plane. And and for those who don't know, because I've, be, I've, been, I've been playing the last, you know, your, your latest. They've got, they're very kind of, it feels very technically kind of um, virtuoso really, isn't it? Uh, it's amazing what you can do with computers, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> but it's it was it was really you know I thought oh what's this it's going to be some and it's, oh blimey this is all kind of very it sounds very technically efficient. Yeah, it's um I, I just play about with these things and if it sounds good then I'll keep it and if it doesn't I'll throw it away. I mean it's, it's, there's no there's no real trick to it. It's just is it, is it, is it do I like it? Yeah, okay, I'll work on it. But sometimes I'll work on things for like you know weeks, and then you play it back, and you go, "What was I thinking?" And then just just stop. But then, of course, the great thing about um, about computers and, and things like that is, if you there's a couple of things I've worked on where I've maybe done that and worked on something for weeks, and then realised I don't like it. But then you know you, just, you can put it into a computer, turn it backwards, add some effects to it, and all of a sudden it sounds interesting. So <laughs> then that could be a basis for something else. See, so nothing gets wasted. And also, I tend to sample myself a lot. Um, so you know there will be things I'll do, and there's like you know an idea, and which never actually gets anywhere further than an idea. But then if you just you know I can sample myself and then put it back into something else, and then all of a sudden it's a it's a it takes it takes music in a different direction. So um, yeah, and I find it most enjoyable. So that's why. Yes, well, it it certainly sort of yeah, like I said, it it's kind of got a, kind of a incredible sort of sonic quality to it. So um, yeah, I was just. So I, I suppose I, I didn't expect it to sound like I, I that that it did. So um, yes, it would be, it be, be fairly pointless trying to make a record that sounded like the Wolfhounds on my own because no, my God, that would be <laughs> crazy stuff. But was there a particular guitarist that you were sort of quite influenced by when you started that project? Um, not well, I love them all really, but um, um, Neil, Neil Young's always been there for me. Um, I love Robert Fripp as well. Uh, Hank Hank Marvin. You know, it's just like 
all of them. <laughs> do, do, do you think your younger self would have been a bit amazed when you know hearing what you, you what you're recording now? It, it, no, it's it's all one of one of the reasons I carry on doing it. My younger self would be disgusted if I wasn't taking advantage of all this technology and the ability to actually release records because it's all, it's all I ever wanted to do. Yes, uh, and you know we were always playing about with like you know, four track tape recorders and, and cassette players and putting one on top of the other to try and like multi-track in a primitive way and now that you, you can just you know literally buy a phone and do it on a bus <laughs> it's like that, 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 that that's one of the reasons why i carry on you know, my, my, my younger self would be horrified if i hadn't carried on and it's, it's one of the things that i find really frustrating about a few friends that have died over the years that they, they died too soon because i know that they will just be grasping the technology that is available today and running with it and, uh, and, I, and I, want, I want to tell them all the time. It's like I want to knock on their door and say, "Look, look at this! Look at this!" But they're not there anymore. So. <laughs> yeah, that must be that. that that's getting a bit strange, really, isn't it? Sort of um, yeah. suddenly there's a sort of urgency in the air. I can tell with bands, uh, with <laughs> with uh, COVID, but also just oh my god, you know, so and so has passed away. Better, better not mess around. Sort of thinking about whether we should do that album or do that. Yeah, yeah, I think I think you're probably right. I think yeah, you get to a point where you go, well, there's not there's no point in sitting on things anymore. Let's get them out there and see. Yes, he likes them. So what's what have you got planned for next year, which is not that far away? Well, I've still got, I've still got too much to plan for this year actually. So um, <laughs> there's three Wolfhounds uh, gigs coming up. So we're playing in London at the Two Two Nine Club um, on the fifth of November with uh, the Great Leap Forward and Bromide. And then we're playing in uh, Middlesbrough with the Inca Babies. And then uh, we're playing in Preston again with the Inca Babies. That's the back end of November. Uh, and then I'm doing, a, I'm hopefully doing a gig in London with Keeley from Dimple Discs and a band called Sack from Dimple Discs. That, and hopefully that's going to be at the, the Lexington on the 9th. Uh, and then the other band I play about with is called The Others, which is with my my children and my brothers. Right. And we, 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 I, sent, I sent you a link to that one. So we started that in 2019 and then COVID happened. <laughs> then we sat on it for you know, over a year and we managed to finish that off in August. So uh, that's hopefully coming out the back end of November and December as well. So just in time for the Christmas market. <laughs> the Christmas market, which we all know. And, his, and did you say Optic Nervous has got some release for next year as well? Yeah, so they've, they've licensed the tapes, uh, the tracks for... Um, Bright and Guilty, which is obviously originally a single album, but there was a lot of uh, B-sides and things that were only ever released on cassette at the time. Uh, and there was, a, there was three tracks that um, were never released on uh, CD. And then there was a couple of tracks we did for a um, tribute album to The Kinks called right. Shangri-La. So, um, that, and that, that's got uh, Matt Dayton on guitar as well. So, um, so yeah, hopefully that's, that's all coming out uh, next year. Are you finding that you're sort of picking up more kind of fans and listeners and uh, followers as, as kind of with so much material coming out and being able to access it through the internet? Yeah, I mean, because it, it, I mean, it's, it's cumulative. So, yeah, I mean, so, you know, Dave's got his solo album out last week. So uh, that, that's great. That, that's that's uh, something else that we're going to put on there. Another string to Dave's burner. I know Dave's got quite a few gigs coming up and he's got another album coming out next year as well. Yes. Um, so yeah. So hopefully, I mean, you know, my solo album is completely different to Dave's solo album, and they're both completely different to the Wolfhounds. So um, it, it, it's it's very difficult to know whether, whether uh, Wolfhounds fans will like what we do on our own or not. But you know, we we need to tell them. <laughs> so, yes, so like, absolutely. So, yeah. Well, it's interesting talking to a few guitarists. I did the one with that. Was it Jerry Leonard who'd who works with Suzanne Vega now, but worked with David Bowie and worked with loads of people. And, you know, when he wasn't working with those people, you know, he would have his solo project going and doing his solo gigs in New York and, yeah. you know, just playing an hour spot. And that's where, you know, someone sort of, you know, told David Bowie, I would go and check out this guitarist, you know, but it's, it's one of those things, isn't it? You know, you don't, you do your, you'll do, you do the other bit of your, creativity which is quite different to what you might be doing with a band or with a you know susan vega i suppose yeah well if you want to give susan my phone number then you know, I, don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I think she's touring next year with jerry so yes you might she might need you but anyway <laughs> but look 
so what if just lastly i mean if you could have said something to like a your, your 16 or 18 year old self who was starting out in in the interesting world that is kind of rock and roll indie pop in your case um what would you um what would you is there anything that you would have kind of just whispered in their ear um probably not because i'm you know i'm, I'm sort of sorry I'm, i stopped for a while uh, uh, but then I went. I went on to do other things during that time, uh, and it was doing those things in a professional capacity that maybe drove me back to Curran doing music and ended up where I am now. And if I had said to myself, "Carry on, keep going," who knows what would have happened? It may have been a completely different story. Yeah. So, uh, uh, I, I might. I'm, no, no, I don't. I really don't think I will. I, 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 I would have let myself made my, make my own mistakes, which I have. <laughs> And uh, yeah, here I am. So. The interesting thing is, doing these interviews and stuff, I just, the passion that people have for making music is, is kind of quite, you know, it's really kind of quite genuine, really, well, really genuine. But, you know, it's like people really like, I just got to keep doing it because this is what I'm kind of here for. And, and it's, it's, you know, it's been kind of interesting. You know, there isn't that kind of, we did it, you know, for, for five years in the 80s and that was it. I mean, there's a couple, but mostly people are just like, no, I really still want to kind of play music, even though it's going to be a bit different and it's not going to have, you know, possibly John, obviously not John Peel sessions and it won't have, you know, NME and all that kind of stuff. But the kind of need to keep creating is, is something that really comes through with so many of these kind of interviews. Yeah, yeah. Well, what do I do when I get in from work and relax? I pick up a guitar and start playing stuff that I'm, you know, just randomly start playing guitar. Oh, that's quite good. And then I'll, I'll record it and then I'll start working on it again. And it just, it never stops. Even, even when I wasn't releasing anything, that, that never stopped. I've got hours and hours and hours of stuff that no one will ever hear. Yes. Uh, it's a it, it's therapeutic if you <laughs> well yeah i think this is this is what it sort of comes down to doesn't it really i think it's that yes the need to do it which is better than being in the sunday league football team where yeah well, what else are you gonna do <laughs> <laughs> I've got to do something with my hands. <laughs> this is true well look this has been fantastic thank you ever so much for giving the time for this um, Andy, this has been brilliant and um if you want i can always give you the link and you can always post it wherever you want but um, yeah please, yeah of course i will yeah please do and then you know you people can hear it and go wow that's amazing but <laughs> that person keeps asking you stupid questions but anyway look i could do that but look thank you ever so much and thank you for the the, the you know album uh, material as well i'll try and play some of that as well which will be brilliant yeah please do yeah i definitely will anyway look take care and thanks ever again ever so much for this i'm thanks now take see you later bye see you. bye, bye. And that, dear listener, is how you end a conversation. Well, not, but um, I leave that in for various reasons. It makes me laugh, smile and slightly cringe. All in three, all parts of it anyway. Look, that's the end. A massive thank you to Andy Golden. And as I said, um, and you heard in the interview, has various solo projects and albums coming out. So do check them out because they are stunning. And um, obviously, play in live dates, go and see him. And also Dave as well, because uh, frankly, Mr. Shangley, they're amazing. This has been David Eastall, The CAD6 Show. If you want to contact me, aren't you lucky? You can um, on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do CAD6 Show. Keep it positive and nice. Otherwise, frankly, don't bother. And all these have been archived. Find those on Spotify, iTunes and Podbean. What can I say? Oh, bye.